Just literally, thank you for coming. And I am so grateful we are studying Habakkuk today because we need his experience and his word. So Habakkuk is an unusual prophetic book because nobody knows who Habakkuk is. He just appears and delivers his brief message in three chapters and then he disappears. So unlike other prophets who declare God's message to people, Habakkuk is the only Old Testament book consisting entirely of dialogue between God and a human. So Habakkuk records his own experience, just like Jonah. So Jonah gives the account of his failure to sympathize with God, but Habakkuk gives the account of his failure to understand God. So Jonah deals with a problem posed by Nineveh, and Habakkuk deals with a problem posed by Babylon. The reason I like Habakkuk so much is that he is so approachable. He is just like us. So he looks around the society and he recognized all the problems. And he saw the proud prospering. And he saw the righteous who are trusting in God oppressed, threat, threatened, and persecuted. And he saw the proud Babylonian who did not acknowledge God, but gained more and more power. And he also saw this political corruption and moral decay and spiritual apostasy and social conflict and legal injustice and physical violence and questioning God, what the, ah, you know, sound familiar, you know? <laughs> so just like us. But not just Habakkuk, and, but through all the prophecy studies, I feel like they are just talking about our current situation. It's so similar. So this is a good thing that this, this is why the Bible is so relatable. But the bad thing is that we haven't learned the lesson yet. All this happened thousands of years ago, but we still have to deal with the same issues. So when are we going to learn the lesson? Hopefully today. Yay! <laughs> so last week we saw Habakkuk ask God questions and offer his complaint. So how long do I have to cry out for help? You know, are you listening? And are you going to straighten out the injustice of the world? You are doing nothing. That's his question to God. God answered, I'm working on it. You know, I used Babylon to discipline Judah. And Habakkuk said, Are you kidding me? They are worse than us. So how many times we pray like that? It's good that he brings his complaint to God, not other human beings, which is worse than useless. And sometimes it turns into a gossip. We all have been there, right? And But the bad thing about those kind of questions is that they imply, I know better than you. So we complain, God doesn't answer our prayer. And then when we get answer, we complain that that's not the answer, what I, answer I want, right? So we say, you have to give me 
this kind of answer at this time because that is best for me. That is our typical attitude. So chapter one is talking about this kind of attitude and chapter two is God's vision. So his doubt and burden could have led him many places like becoming bitter or losing faith but chapter 3 has a totally different tune, which is Song of Habakkuk. His complaint and doubt transform into a song of prayer, praise, and joy. So how did that happen? Did he just take a pill of faith or something? <laughs> if you read the whole book of Habakkuk, you know, just slowly and carefully, you can recognize that this is a book about Habakkuk's steady spiritual progression from worry to worship, from fear to faith, from questioning God to trusting God. So don't you want to know how he did? <laughs> Let's figure it out. So verses 1 to 2, a prayer of Habakkuk. The prophet on Chigoyanos. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So in this chapter, he doesn't speak. God doesn't speak, but Habakkuk speaks once more and has a last word. After he let out all his frustrations and listened to God's answer, and he contemplate what he said and who God is and respond with a prayer. But this is not just a prayer. It is a song, a song that has been preserved so that it can be sung in worship. The plural word shigoyanos and is a singular form, shigoyan, each appear in the Bible only once. Verse 1 mentions Shigoyanus, and the title of Psalm 7 mentions Shigoyan. Since no one really knows what they mean, the translator just left the word untranslated. The Shigoyanus mentioned in here can be referred to the content of the poem, or accompanying instrument, or its musical setting, or its tone. We can see uh, at the verse 19, last verse, that he mentioned that this should be given to the chief singer on my string instrument. So most commentators think the word shigoyanos carry the idea of strong emotions or erratic wandering. As best we can tell in Habakkuk chapter 3 and Psalm chapter 7, was to be accompanied by music that fit the theme. So in verse 2, the song opened with a confessed fear and three requests. He expressed fear when he heard of what God intended to do. But his fear is not fear of destruction, but godly reverence, which inspired confidence and concerning the sovereignty of God and the recognition of his power. Habakkuk recognized 
Christ, uh, judgment was coming on Judah. So he stopped fighting God intellectually and humbly submitted to the will of God for the nation. His, uh, the first his request is to repeat God's work. The word repeat is from the Hebrew word haya, which literally means to bring something back to life, like revive. It is a word used to describe something that is brought back to health and life from a terrible sick condition. Someone said that revival is revival. That is returning to obedient to God's word. So Habakkuk is praying that God would start a new reviving life work in Israel and bring people back to spiritual life. So God's judgment act as a discipline to restore the sinner is the best outcome. But little did he know that the revival would be at least 75 years away. The second thing he's asking is that God would make it known that he was the one who done this in his time. What he's saying is that just let us know your presence, your power, and your grace, and your strength in the midst of all this darkness and trouble and effort. He wants God to make sure that all people realize his work of redemption because God's works are a way to reveal his character. Whatever become of Israel, become of Israel, let not the God of Israel be forgotten in the world. The third request is God's great mercy in the midst of his wrath. Uh, there are several Hebrew words to describe God's wrath, but here the word wrath comes from the Hebrew word rogan, which means usually a turmoil or trouble. So it's like he's saying, God, I want you to do your work of judgment. I know we deserve it, but it's going to hurt for us. So please just remember your mercy and have some compassion for us. That's his prayer. Even um, a broken heart, he does not ask God to stop it. You know, if I were him, just, just please stop it. But he didn't. And urge God to compassion because he knows God's character. God's judgment and salvation and judgment and grace and judgment and mercy and judgment and redemption always go together. He knows that. So Matthew Henry, Henry pointed out that we must not say, remember my merit, but remember your mercy. So verses uh, 2 to 7. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Helen. His glory covered the heavens, and His praises filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, ray flashed from His hand, where His power was hidden. Flag went before him. Pestilence followed his step. He stood and shook the earth. He looked 
and made the nation tremble. The ancient mountain crumbled and the age-old hill collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress and dwellings of Midian in anguish. So in the second element of his prayer, Habakkuk moved from petition to praise. In verses 3 to 15, he saw a vision of God coming to act in the manner God has in the past. So these verses are in the form of a theophany. The word theophany comes from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and phani, final, meaning appear. So it means a visual manifestation of God to human on earth in the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament theophanies could be dreams, visions, or angels' vision. For example, um, the angel that wrestled with Jacob and the burning bushes that spoke to Moses and the angels that visit Abraham and Sarah are all considered examples of theophanies. In chapter 3, God appears as a personified warrior in nature. So in these verses, Habakkuk's vision comes with several sets of imagery. First, God who lived in heaven comes into Mount Sinai in order to act. The Timur was the largest city in Edom, and Edom itself also called Timur. Mount, Mount Peron was a part of Sinai area. It is a very special spot because um, the Deuteronomy 33 said, the Lord came from Sinai out of Seir and from Paran to deliver his people and to give them the law. The reason Habakkuk includes these two places may be that the call attention to God's deliverance of Exodus. So this is a, uh, the route of Exodus. So he reminds himself of the wilderness of the defeat of many nations as Israelite possessed the promised land. So he reminds himself of faithfulness of God during all those years. So um, second imagery is God's glory and power. The image of his radiance and sunlight and flashing rays refer to the dazzling glory of God. When God appeared in order to act, it is like the bright shining of the dawn sun with its ray flashing. So which makes it impossible to look at God. So that this power that God comes with is hidden until God is ready to reveal it. So in Exodus chapter 34, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with, with the two tablets. And what was it about Moses that was so different? His face was radiant like the sun, right? So he just had reflected something of the brilliance of the light of God. And here, Habakkuk expressed that when he says, 
His splendor was like the sunrise. The third, when God expressed his power, it involves and boasts blessings and clamor. The plague and pestilence are two terrifying forces that are under God's control. They destroy Pharaoh and the Egyptians to flee the people from Egypt. A plague also kills 70,000 Israelites in David's time in 2 Samuel. So what a perfect time to talk about plague and pestilence, <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> so first, the image in uh, verse 6 shows uh, what happened when God stand up to add, take an action. The entire cosmos went into conversion. The nation seemed to have been power forever, and the mountain and hills seemed eternal. But in front of power of God's appearance, they shook and clasped. Though one irony in verse 6 is that God's immobile creation, such as you know, earth and nation and mountains and hills, seem to be more responsive to his coming and presence than human beings. You know, sadly, we often do not realize the presence of God nor the power of God. And he said, he marches on forever. Eugene Peterson translates this as the path God takes are older than the oldest mountains and hills. So which means his ways are forever the same because he is the forever the same. In this, his uh, very name is El Olam, which means the everlasting God. And someone said um, there are two things in the word, never change. We, human beings, and God. Sad but true, have you ever tried to change your husband? You, you know. <laughs> but what is this mentioned in this context? His point is that even though the Babylonian invasion will occur as God promised, he will provide second access for his people not from Egypt, but from Babylon. Because his ways are everlasting, Habakkuk is confident that God will deliver his people from Babylon, and just like God did in the past. After the darkness of captivity, God would be the sunrise of freedom and hope. This is why it is so important for us to remember what God has done for us in the past. We have to remember when God blessed us, what he accomplished for us, how he provided for us, and how he brought us out of the darkest time of our lives. When we were drowning in our dying circumstances, he did pull us out of there. That is why we are still here right now. Right? Otherwise, we would be in long gone. But sometimes we all suffer a senior moment and forget what God has done for us in the past. <laughs> so I saw an article about six ways to fight spiritual amnesia. 
which was written by Pastor Ben Ria. First, think. Think about what your events of defining moment are, and when God answered His power in your life, and when He answered your prayer or fulfilled a promise. In Psalms, uh, Psalm 77, Quran said, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deed. Second, thank. Have a grateful heart for what he has done. Psalm 91 said, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and I will reaccount all of your wonderful deeds. Third, tell. Share your experience of God with others, like family and friends and children. Joshua 4, 21, 20 say, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Fourth, tradition. As you think about um, holiday and birthday tradition, and consider how you can incorporate ways of telling the stories of God's faithfulness. Transcribe. Just write down your prayer request and God's answer on those prayers. So when you are feeling discouraged, just look back on those records of God's faithfulness. The last one you mentioned is Taste and see. So use your various senses to remember what God has done. For example, and touch and smell and taste the Lord's Supper. Or you feel uh, immersing water at the baptism can help us to remember what God has done. So I hope you practice this tip to combat spiritual amnesia. Okay, verses 8 to 15. Were you angry with the river road, Lord, and was your breath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariot to victory? You uncover your bows, uh, you call the many arrows, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and rise, and torrent of water swept by. The deep board and lift its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. At the glint of your flying arrows, at the light of your flashing spear, in rest you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nation. You come, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You strip him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierce his head when his warrior strung out to scatter us, going as, th as though about to devour the wretches who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Don't you feel like we are watching an action movie? Yeah. <laughs> So in verses 3 to 6, Habakkuk used God as a third person, but here he used the second person, you. So he is speaking his prayer directly 
to God personally once again. Verses 8 to 15 is a victory song which describes God's miraculous act of conquest and victory. AJ Hauser occurs on proposed five key motives that the early Hebrew victory song have in common. First, Yahweh as the divine hero who comes to Israel's deliverance. Second motive is a description of Yahweh together with action passing of God's victory. Third, the use of water imagery. Fourth, mocking of enemy. <laughs> and fifth, defeat of the enemy described in terms of his fall. So all five occurred in these verses. Can you find it? So Yahweh's uh, first one, Yahweh as a divine hero in verse 8 to 13. And action text seen in this 8 to 15 whole, you know, verses. And the water imagery is 8 to 10 to verse 15. And the mockery, mocking of the enemy is verse 14. And the defeat of enemy is 13b to 14. So, another imagery we have here is God's victory over rivers, stream, and sea. Habakkuk affirmed that God was not angry with rivers and sea. As here, rivers refer to Nile and Jordan River, and sea means Red Sea. So God is not angry at rivers and sea. Then what is he angry at? His anger is directed toward the wickedness of the nation. Exodus is a recurrent theme in chapter 3, so the rivers and sea imagery may well refer to it. A couple years ago, I found the perfect definition of God's wrath. I think I told you when we studied Matthew. Dave Bruno said, The wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God in friction with injustice. It is the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. Where grace manifests itself, breath is also shown to the ungrateful. God's rest does not contradict God's love. It proves it. Love that tempers injustice is not lovable. So God's anger is not like our anger. God's wrath is never petty or inappropriate, but it is always perfectly precious. So at first, this vision is all about God bringing calamity, but it is about God's deliverance of people from oppression. We know that when Israel like, uh, escaped from slavery in Egypt, the Egyptians got on their horses and chariot to chase after Israel. Habakkuk now realized that it wasn't the Egyptian riding those horses, and it wasn't the Egyptian riding the chariot. God was behind every bit They rode the horses and chariot into the middle of the Red Sea. God was in the process of saving his people 
and he caused the Egyptians to ride out in the middle of the Red Sea so he could destroy them and save his own. As the Lord of the waters and commander of the armies, he is glowing with light and marching through the earth to do his redemptive work, and nothing can stop against him. Then, um, what are the main purposes in God's action in these verses? To thresh the nation and deliver his people, to save his anointed, and to strike the evil leader. In verse 13, your anointed one is suddenly introduced. So to whom does it refer? It has been um, taken as a referring to Israel's divinity king. If the reference is mainly historical and has in view the era of Exodus and wilderness wandering, it is in chapter 3, the term must be Moses. But the Persian king Cyrus had been designated and called by Isaiah, God's anointed. And Eugene Peterson, uh, the message interpreted first as, you were out to save your people, to save your special, specially chosen people. So anointing is always a sign of, a sign of God's choosing. When a king was chosen, he was anointed. When a priest was chosen, he was anointed. The chosen nation of Israel was considered God's anointed people. And we believers who has the Holy Spirit within us are anointed. So Jesus was anointed to be the Savior of the world. Therefore, in this passage, the salvation of the anointed refers to the Jewish people in captivity. However, it also seems to have a prophetic reference to Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one. Since Jesus uh, would come through the nation of Israel, a remnant must be saved to continue God's eternal plan. So finally, the anointed one, Jesus, would come again in judgment on the nation. So last week, uh, we saw that um, Tabaku was questioning God and complained that he wasn't doing anything about the corruption and the evil. Now he has come to realize that God is doing plenty. He used political and ethnic turmoil and nature to accomplish his purposes. The fact that he is involving everything for the sake of his people can serve to encourage Judah in a desperate moment to keep on believing. So God is sovereign Lord of history. So nothing takes place without his knowing. That is why history is his story. Okay? His story. <laughs> so now, uh, my favorite verses, 16 to 19. I heard my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept, crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently 
for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the field produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the highway. For the director of music on my string instrument. So now the subject changes from the second person to first person, I. So it is Habakkuk's own response to himself. In the beginning of the book, he has a doubt and complaint. But after Habakkuk knew that judgment was coming for his people, his thought filled with filled just, um, his heart with dread because he's a human being. But in spite of it, he recorded one of the most beautiful and amazing affirmations of faith. So what made him change? What gave him such a confident and grateful heart despite of coming difficulties? How could he find joy in the midst of suffering? Because he took his eye off the surrounding circumstances and focuses on God. Instead of being centered on himself, his people, his nation, his agenda, he took one steady, long look at God. Do you know who is the first human being who walked on water in history? Jesus? No. He is God. The first fully human who walked on water in history is Peter. <laughs> when he first tried to walk on water, he asked Jesus for help. So Jesus said, okay, come ahead. So he jumped out of the boat, he walked on water toward to Jesus. Can you imagine his exhilaration? Wow, I am walking on water just like Jesus. But when he looked down at the waves, churning beneath his feet, he lost his nerve and started to sink. That is what happened when our focus changes from Jesus to our circumstances. When we focus on our circumstances, we will have fear, doubt, stress, and complaint. Look around the world these days. Virus, illness, war, corruption, murder, violence, deception, injustice. How can we have anything but fear? Sometimes we wonder, when God is going to deal with this, just like Habakkuk. If Habakkuk think about the imminent invasion of Babylonians, his heart pounds and his lips quiver, his bone decays, and his legs tremble. But you know what? Habakkuk died before even Babylon invasion happened. So what that means is that in his whole life, he had to live with this terrible prophecy and wonder when it could happen. Can you imagine his anguish? For me, 
ignorance is bliss in this situation. But instead, he sits back quietly and waits for doomsday. Even if the enemy comes and destroys the fig tree, the vine, the olive trees and fields and carry off the sheep and the cattle, which means taking away all material potential for survival, basic survival, he will rejoice and have joy in God. How can he do that? Because he focuses on God and remembers his deed in the past. He does not wait for God's future deliverance to take place before beginning to be joyful about it. He knows that people who wait for God find new strength even before he see what they waited for. The Martin Lloyd Jones said, Our troubles can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. That is what Habakkuk learned as well. Habakkuk is the proof that when we focus on God, we are able to peacefully accept what Isaiah said in 58, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if these words settle in our heart, we can get strength. And if we have strength, we can have hope. The name Habakkuk means to wrestle or embrace. In his book, he does both. First, he wrestles with God because he cannot understand God's plan. And here, he embraced God and his work. So I um, read a devotional book, Jesus Calling Every Day. You know, you know that book, a lot of you have that. And after I prepared today's speech, on February 27th, I read that day's devotion. And it just hit me. Hey, this is what I'm talking about. So I read to you at the conclusion of about Keep your eyes on me. Waves of adversity are washing over you, and you feel tempted to give up. As your circumstances consume more and more of your attention, you are losing the sight of me. Yet I am with you always, holding you by your right hand. I am fully aware of your situation, and I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. Your greatest danger is worrying about tomorrow. If you try to carry tomorrow's burdens today, you will stagger under the load and eventually fall flat. You must discipline yourself to live within the boundaries of today. It is in the present moment that I walk close to you and helping you carry your burdens. Keep your focus on my presence in the present. Thank you. Perfect time.